Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When someone is struggling with a seemingly easy problem, someone else might say, come on, it's not rocket science. The inference being that rocket science represents the pinnacle of complexity. But my guest today argues that the study of rocket science contains some simple overarching principles that cannot only be universally understood, but universally applied to all kinds of problems and decisions. His name is Ozan Varal. He served on the operations team for the 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers Project, and he's the author of the book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. We begin our conversation discussing why Ozan went from studying astrophysics to going to law school and how his scientific background has influenced his legal career. We then dig into ways that the same thought process that enables spacecraft to travel millions of miles can also be applied to moving forward in work and life. Ozan explains how scientists deal with uncertainty and why you have to constantly question the way things are done to get better results. We end our discussion by talking about how to use thought experiments to solve problems, how to test ideas, and how to actually learn from your failures. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash rocket scientist. All right, Ozan Varal, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Brett. Pleasure to be here. So you just published a book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategy You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life. So you, at one time, you're, you're a law professor right now, but in a former life, you were actually a rocket scientist. Tell us about your career or your experience with NASA. Yeah, I've uh, ma- managed to live multiple lifetimes in this in this one life. So I majored in astrophysics, at college, I went to Cornell, and one of the professors at Cornell, his name is Steve Squires, he was, when I started there, in charge of a project to send what would become the 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers Project to send two rovers to Mars. Their names were called Spirit and Opportunity. And I was working for him as part of the operations team of the mission. And we really did a hodgepodge of things, everything from designing operation scenarios as to what the rovers would do after they landed on Mars. I helped pick landing sites for the rovers. My senior thesis was actually programming some of the algorithms that the rovers would use to snap photos of the Martian surface. So yeah, so it was it was a combination of, of, of different things. And I did that for about four years until I decided that I didn't want to do astrophysics long-term and did this major 180 pivot, which bewilders a lot of people <laughs> and ended up going to law school. What, what caused that pivot? Why pivot to law? So I've always been much more interested in practical applications rather than theory. And and one of the and this is why I loved working on the Mars mission. I mean it was like as practical as it gets when you're actually designing the rover and designing scenarios as to what's going to happen when the rovers land on Mars. But the classes I took in college were all extremely theoretical. And I didn't love them. And for me to do anything with astrophysics, I would have had to go get a PhD. And that just wasn't for me. I mean, there was a voice that said like, oh, you need grit. You need to double down on this. But there was another part of me that said, no, you know, this isn't the right fit for you. I was like a winemaker who enjoyed the process of making wine. Like I enjoyed the process of thinking like a rocket scientist, but I didn't care about the theoretical substance basically. So I ended up taking a a law class that was taught by a Cornell law professor and he taught it only for undergrads and he used the Socratic method. We read actual cases. 
So this was me dipping my toes in the water, and I absolutely loved that class. And uh, yeah, over time, I just grew more interested in the in the physics of society, and ended up going to law school. I mean, how did your science background, your rocket science background, influence or influence your law career? Quite a bit, actually. I think you know, science equips you with a set of critical thinking skills, analytical skills. There's a quote from Carl Sagan that I love. He says, science is much more a a way of thinking than it is a body of knowledge. I think science intimidates a lot of people because when they think about science, they think about like all the horrific substance that they had to learn in, in high school and they didn't like it. But really, science is more about critical thinking and, and decision-making under uncertainty. And so I brought the, the critical thinking skills with me to law and, and then beyond, of course. And also, one of the skills that really served me well in law school, and this came directly as a result of my scientific training, was the ability to shift perspectives and see arguments on different sides of the issue. Because one of the things that you do as a scientist is... You come up with a hypothesis, and then you try to falsify it. You try to prove yourself wrong. Nothing in science is ever proven right, setting aside mathematics. It's proven not wrong. And the way you do that is by beating the crap out of your own ideas. And and that requires you to then look at your own ideas, your own hypotheses, from a very different perspective, and ideally from multiple perspectives. And that skill is invaluable in law. The best lawyers know the opposition's argument better than the opposition does. So if you can take your beliefs, if you can take the way that you look at an issue and see it in a different light, see it in the light that your opponent is seeing it, that will take you really, really far in in law school and also as a practicing attorney. And so I was able to utilize that in law school and and that came as as a direct result of my education. Well, let's dig into your book here, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, because basically you take these, this idea of this scientific worldview that you learned in astrophysics and helping people, just regular people, apply that idea or that framework or that way of thinking to their own life or their own work. And you, you break the book into three sections. You've got launch, accelerate, achieve. And in the launch section, one of the very first principles you highlight in how to think scientifically is how to deal with uncertainty. So I think most people, most humans, like they don't like uncertainty. Like it's yeah. something we're afraid of. Like what, what's going on there? Why are we so afraid of embracing uncertainty? And then let's talk about what we can do to counter that. Sure. I think there's a, there's a large evolutionary component to our fear of the unknown. Because if you think back, you know, thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago, if you didn't fear the unknown, you may not have survived. Because the unknown presented potential threats. The unknown could be something that could kill you. And so our ancestors who survived long enough to pass their genes to us were afraid of the unknown and for good reason. We don't live in that same environment now, but we still are, I think, embodied with the same same fear of the the uncertain. That That's part of it. So an evolutionary component. I think the other part of it has to do with social and educational conditioning. Because in the education system, especially in primary school and high school, there's really no room for uncertainty. At least the the way that I grew up in Istanbul, Turkey and, and lived there for 17 years and the way that the education system was structured there, like you just learned a series of right answers in in class and then you spit them out on an exam. 
And that's how you get an A. Like, there is one right way to interpret history. There is one right way to structure the curriculum. There is one right path to an A+. It's all about certainty. You know, if you open up a typical science textbook, you'll see like Newton's laws as if those laws just arrived by like a grand divine inspiration of some sort or a stroke of genius. You don't see the uncertainty, the messy reality that Newton had to deal with to winnow down the laws to to the ones that that appear in the in the textbook. Um, so I think the evolutionary component of, of our fear of the unknown is then reinforced by by our education system, by our society. So then we end up basically being really afraid of of the unknown. I think that's the the two primary reasons why it appears in our system. Although I have to say, you know, and this is somewhat of a paradox, I think. Even though humans are really afraid of the unknown, we're also really adaptable. Um, you know, we want to know for certain what tomorrow is going to look like. We're never going to know that. But when tomorrow comes, if you're able to apply some of the strategies I explained in the book, like you can quickly adapt to what's going on in the world around you. And I think that's one of our advantage as a species over, over some of the others. Our brains are neuroplasticity is a real thing. I mean, our brains are very adaptable to to what's going on around us. So when a crisis hits, like the COVID pandemic, we're recording this in, in mid-June of 2020, when something like that happens, we see humans and businesses, we're certainly struggling, but also a lot of adaptation going on as well. So what do, so like, okay, scientists know there's uncertainty, they're comfortable with mm-hmm. it. What sort of framework do they, or sort of mental models they use to be able to manage or handle that uncertainty more effectively than most people do? Sure. I think the step number one is just knowing that uncertainty is not an enemy. Uh, I think, honestly, that's the biggest hurdle that scientists cover that most people don't. Scientists approach uncertainty with wonder with curiosity. When they see a blank canvas, that excites scientists. And I think it terrifies a lot of people. A lot of scientists go into science because they are looking for their very own blank canvas to fill. They're you know, navigating this huge dark mansion and going into these dark rooms and, and trying to find some answers to what they're looking for. And that excites them because they know that the unknown isn't going to eat you, <laughs> at, at least most types of unknowns. It's just a process of, of discovery. I think that's the, the biggest mental barrier is, is looking, at, looking at the unknown with curiosity instead of a fear. And that's more of a mental barrier. In terms of practical strategies, I think scientists have a way of, of focusing on what they can control and at ignoring the rest. I think one of the one of the reasons why uncertainty is is so alarming to a lot of people and is so frustrating to a lot of people because when we face uncertainty, we try to control things that we cannot control. Now, I'll give an example uh, from my from my own life when my book was published on April fourteenth, and I had this like big book tour plan that was going to travel around the country and give talks. And when when the pandemic happened, of course, the book tour was was canceled since travel stopped. And I spent two very miserable days not thinking like a rocket scientist. <laughs> I was I was wishing for reality to be different than it was. And and that's not a very productive use of of anyone's time. And then I went back to my training and thought to myself, all right, you know, I, I had this thing planned 
the pandemic happened. Now there's a lot of uncertainty about how book promotion is going to work. But I can approach this with curiosity and focus on actually the variables that are within my control. I can't make travel come back. I can't restore my physical book tour. But there are things that I can do that are within my control. So I ended up basically doing a number of virtual events with authors who were in a similar position as me, who also had their book tours canceled. And and I was probably actually able to reach a lot more people than I would have been able to through a, a physical book tour. So what ended up as, or what seemed at first as a curse ended up as a blessing because it made me question the assumptions that that I was operating under. The assumption being that, you know, the best way to to get the word out about a book is to go on a book tour. But if you think about it, it takes a lot of time for me to get on a plane from Portland, Oregon, where I am, and travel to New York City and walk into a Barnes and Noble and sign books for, I don't know, 50 people and then fly back home. If my strategy is to to get the word out about the ideas in the book, there are far more efficient ways of of doing it. And then I'll share one more strategy about about dealing with uncertainty, and and I use this on a on a weekly basis. And it's the distinction between two way doors and and one way doors. One of the reasons why we're so afraid of the uncertain is because we assume that if we take a leap into the unknown. Like if you move to a new city, if you try a new marketing strategy, if you launch a new product or a business and things don't work out as you hoped, the assumption is that the world as you know it is going to come to an end. But that assumption turns out not to be true in many cases. Most of the decisions in our lives come with two-way doors, not one-way doors. Meaning that you can walk into a room, have a look around, and if you don't like what you see, you can move back out. You know, for me, for example, I practiced law after law school for a little bit. And, and for reasons that we can talk about if, if you like, Brett, I wasn't satisfied with it. And, um, and I thought about going into academia. And initially, I, I, it took me like months and months of agonizing. Uh, over that uncertainty of, of of whether or not I should I should make the leap, and then it occurred to me that that decision to go into academia was a was a two way door decision. It wasn't a one way door decision. I could jump into academia, try it for a few years, and if I didn't like it, I could always go back to to the practice of law. So I find that framework to be really useful to ask myself if I'm afraid of of making a decision because there's so much uncertainty, I just ask myself, is this a one-way door or a two-way door? If it's a two-way door, then it makes sense to decide quickly and run an experiment and see how things work out. And if you like what you see, you can double down on it. And if you don't like what you see, you can just walk back out. What did you not like about the practice of law? Was it having to bill 15 minutes of your life every yeah, day? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was, was a huge part of it. I mean, it... I didn't like thinking of my life in in six minute increments. That was a, that was a huge part of it, and and then the other part was honestly I didn't think it was intellectually challenging enough. At least the type of law that I was doing, it, it felt like on most days that I didn't need a, a a license to do what I was doing. It was like you know getting the clients to do certain things or interviewing people. And I just kept thinking to myself, I'm not really putting my my legal training to use here. And so it got boring quite quickly for me. 
So you, you mentioned earlier, one of the things that people do to manage uncertainty is sort of rely on these systems or unwritten rules that we have in our culture or in our society. And that leads people to like, yeah, it takes away uncertainty, make people feel like, okay, I know what I'm doing. But it can also lead to this thing that's, that's in science called path dependence, where mm-hmm. it's basically like, well, that's the way we've always done it. There's nowhere else, no, there's nothing else to do. Um, so how, how does path dependence get in the way of good science? And then also, how does it get in the way of making progress in life? Yeah, and I think path dependence exists everywhere. I mean, if you just look around you in your own life, in business, what we've done before shapes what we do next. And that mentality of we've always done it this way exists in so many places, and it gets in the way of change. I remember the my very first year of teaching at, at law school, there was a class called criminal procedure that I think every other law school in the country offers it as an upper-level class, but we teach it in the first year. And I was curious about why that is, and I asked one of my senior colleagues why we teach criminal procedure, which is a, a complicated class that requires a strong foundation in other subjects. And he looked at me and he said, We've always done it that way. And then went back to what he was doing. I was going to say something in response, but I didn't have tenure yet, so I kept, I kept my mouth shut. But the, the, there might be a perfectly valid reason, by the way, for teaching criminal procedure in the first year, but saying we've always done it this way struck me as a really lousy reason to, to stay the course. So path dependence is a real thing, and the status quo is really, really sticky, regardless of, of what industry you might be in. One of my favorite examples is the like the laptop, the, the keyboard that we use on a daily basis. I'm I'm looking at it right now. It's uh, it's known by the first six letters, Q W E R T Y, and this layout was designed initially to be inefficient. Old typewriters would block, would get blocked. They would get mechanical key blockage if you type too quickly. So they designed a layout that would be intentionally inefficient so that it would slow down typing speed and therefore prevent mechanical key blockage. And then the, the the letters that make up the word typewriter were also placed on the first line of of the keyboard. So if you want to try it out on your on your laptop right now, you can type typewriter by just using the words on that or the letters on that first line. Of course, mechanical key blockage is no longer a problem. And we don't have typewriter salesmen going around demonstrating how the machine works by typing typewriter anymore. But that arrangement has has stuck. So there are just so many assumptions and processes and habits and routines that we're all operating under that are not efficient, but they're there simply because that's what we did yesterday. So we do it again today. And how do you become aware of those sort of unwritten rules that might not be efficient? Like, how do you b- develop a spidey sense for that? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And it's not easy. I think you have to be really intentional about what you're doing. And you have to be really intentional about questioning assumptions on a, on a regular basis. So asking yourself every now and then, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why is this process here? Why do I have this habit? Why am I using this this browser? There's a study that shows that people who don't use the default browser that comes with their computer, like if they use Chrome, for example, on a Mac that comes installed with pre-installed with Safari, they tend to perform better at work. And it's not because using Chrome over Safari magically makes you into a better performer, but it's because someone who 
takes that mentality of questioning assumptions, does it beyond the world of just browser choice and applies that same mindset to other places as well. So getting into the habit of just asking that question is a, is a huge first, first step. And then the second thing that's really helpful is bringing in outsiders into the conversation. Outsiders have a way of asking those what people call dumb questions that are actually not dumb at all. They're really smart questions because they tend to be really basic, but they go to some like fundamental assumption that you're operating under, but you're not seeing that assumption because you're too close to the problem to think differently. And that's why a lot of the, the gate crashers in different industries tend to be outsider, outsiders to that industry. So like Elon Musk comes to mind. He was an outsider to the rocket science world. He was in Silicon Valley. He co-founded PayPal and then sold it to, to eBay. And he picked up rocket science by reading textbooks on a beach in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Another example is Reed Hastings. Before he founded co-founded Netflix, he was a software developer. Jeff Bezos came to the retail world from the finance world. Sarah Blakely, who is the world's youngest self-made female billionaire, was selling fax machines door-to-door before she started Spanx, which is an underwear company. And a lot of these, a lot of these outsiders were then able to look at an, at an industry and see the flawed ways of operating, the assumptions that that industry was operating under, and then, then disrupt those assumptions and pave the way for something much better. I mean, in our, in our personal lives too, it's, it's not hard to do this. My wife, Kathy, is a, is a sounding board for, for anything I do. She reads everything I write and, and she gives me amazing advice because she has a perspective, an outsider perspective that I don't have. And she's able to pinpoint assumptions, outdated assumptions that, that, I'm, that I am operating under. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply, they have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. 
I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So another mental tool that scientists use to figure things out are mental experiments, mental thought experiments. Because mm-hmm. I think people think, oh, most science is done with beakers and they're like testing things like physically. Well, that does happen. But before that happens, long before that happens, scientists are often testing this stuff out or doing simulations in their head. So any examples of thought experiments? And then also I'd like to see like, what are some thought experiments that just regular people can use on a daily basis to gain more insights about themselves or their life? Sure. I think one of the one of the most famous thought experiments is is Einstein's thought experiment when he was just 16 years old. He thought to himself, what would it be like to ride next to a beam of light? And it sounds like a crazy question, and it is. And I can imagine like a well-meaning parent saying, you know, <laughs> go back and do your homework and stop the crazy talk. But I'm so glad no one did that. Because that question, that thought experiment of writing next to a light beam and and thinking through what he would observe stayed with Einstein for 10 years. And its answer eventually culminated 
in the special theory of, of relativity. And it all happened in his mind. Uh, Nikola Tesla, the, f- the famous inventor, would imagine all of his inventions and how they would work in his mind before he actually built them in, in practice. There is no, you know, there is no magic formula for, for running thought experiments because by definition, each thought experiment, each question that we come up with is, is unique. It's more about creating the right conditions so that you can generate breakthrough answers just by thinking. And by the way, even that revelation that you can generate breakthroughs just by thinking is shocking to a lot of people because we're so conditioned when we're struggling with something, when we're struggling with a question, to look externally for answers, to pick up a self-help book, to jump on Google, to listen to an expert, as opposed to looking within. But it's amazing how original ideas you can generate simply by thinking. And so one of the best things you can do for yourself to be more creative, to be more original is to actually create more slack in your life. It's hard to, really hard to come up with creative thought experiments, really hard to innovate when you're clearing out your email inbox. So that requires being purposeful about creating moments of boredom in your day. And I define boredom as spending chunks of uninterrupted time free of of distractions. And we have so little boredom in our lives. And boredom in in, in many ways is an endangered state because we're moving from one notification to the next, from one email to the next, from one meeting to the next without pausing, reflecting, deliberating, and thinking for ourselves. And that has a, a number of consequences. One is that misinformation thrives when people are in questioning what they hear, but also they stop generating insights on their own. I mean, one of the one of the best things that I've ever done for my own creative output was to build in this like airplane mode into my day. That could be just like me sitting on a recliner I have in my office for say 20 minutes or 30 minutes with a notepad and a pen doing nothing but thinking and then jotting down ideas that come up. I use the same thing. I use a sauna a couple times a week and I do the same thing in there. Uh, I bring a notepad with me, which gets sweat, but that's okay. And I just sit there and like jot down ideas that that come up. And and this is why, by the way, you know, the the old cliche about the epiphany coming in the shower is, is so valid because in these moments of slack, you're basically letting your subconscious make the connections that it needs to make. And if you're constantly working on something, if you don't have slack in your life, then your subconscious is not going to have the capability, certainly not to the to the same extent, to be able to make those connections in your brain between disparate ideas that will generate breakthrough insights. So you have to be purposeful about it, especially in this modern modern times when we're just constantly glued to our our smartphones. As the saying goes, it's the silence between the notes that makes the music. So, you know, a lot of times when people do have a problem and they start grappling with it and they go off by themselves and they try to do that, what they tend to do, I've noticed I do this, is like they tend to focus on finding the right answer. Right. And scientists do that, but like you talk about how rocket scientists or even scientists in general, instead of spending more time on trying to figure out what the answer is, they oftentimes spend like reframing the question, thinking about, am I asking the, even asking the right question? Right. Because focusing on the answer can actually oftentimes lead you astray. Yeah, exactly. For a number of reasons. I mean, one is 
there's usually more than one right answer. Unlike, again, this goes back to our discussion from earlier about the education system where you're taught that there's a single right answer to each question. And that is so untrue. There's usually more than one right way of doing something. There is more than one right way of, of launching your next product. There's more than one right way of landing on Mars. And that, by the way, is, is another key. If you're grappling with the unknown and you're looking for like, what is the best possible choice? Just keep in mind that there's going to be more than one right answer, more than one way to do whatever it is that, that you're trying to do. And scientists are very much aware of that. And I think a second component of, of the danger with the right answers is that right answers are really cheap. I mean, knowledge is no longer a scarce commodity. By the time that Google or Siri or Alexa can spit out the right answer, the world has moved on. Now, obviously, answers aren't irrelevant. You have to know some of the answers before you can begin asking the, the right questions. But the answers simply serve as a, as a launch pad to discovery. So they're the beginning, not the end. And breakthroughs, contrary to popular wisdom, don't begin with a smart answer. They almost always begin with a with a smart question. One of the examples from the Mars mission that I worked on that illustrates that principle is this was in 1999. And at the time, our, our mission was to send a single rover to Mars. And we were busy designing, you know, operation scenarios and building our rovers. And that year, which was a particularly bad year for NASA, another spacecraft, which wasn't our baby, but it was being sent to Mars to land on the Martian surface, called the Mars Polar Lander, crashed. And we, our, our Mars rover was going to use the exact same landing mechanism that the Mars Polar Lander was going to use. And that landing mechanism had just failed spectacularly. Understandably, our mission was put on hold and we went back to the drawing board to try to come up with a, a better, uh, safer way of, of landing on Mars. And I remember distinctly one day, um, my boss came into the Mars room where the, the operations team used to work. And he told us that he had just gotten off the phone with the administrator of NASA and the administrator of NASA asked a very simple question. He said, what if we sent two rovers instead of one? So again, our mission at the time was just to send one rover to Mars. And that was our mission because that's what NASA had been doing every two years was to send a single rover, single spacecraft to Mars. And status quo, as we discussed, is really sticky. And the, the question that that NASA administrator asked reframed the problem because the problem wasn't just a faulty landing system. Of course, we were going to fix that. But the problem was way beyond that. It was just the inherent risk of sending this delicate robot 40 million miles through outer space and crossing your fingers that nothing bad happens along the way. But if you send two rovers instead of one, you end up putting your eggs, not just in one basket, but two baskets. So you're, you're minimizing risk, you're decreasing risk, and you're increasing potential reward because two rovers means double the science. Two rovers means you can send two rovers to very different places on Mars and have the rovers explore very different areas. And, and by the way, with economies of scale, when you're building two of the same thing, the second thing ends up costing much less than the first one. So we ended up going with that. That simple question changed everything. We ended up sending two rovers to Mars in 2003. And I'm so glad we did that. So the two rovers were called Spirit and Opportunity. Spirit ended up roving the Martian surface, I think, for about six years. And by the way, 
we built these things to last for 90 days. That was their warranty. Spirit lasted for, for six years. An opportunity, and I still get goosebumps every time I say this, rode the, the Red Planet for over 14 years into its 90-day mission. All because someone was willing to step back and, and dare to, to see the problem in a different light. Yeah, and ask a different question. Yeah, exactly. So one thing that rocket scientists do is they, they test things. They're always doing test flights. We saw this with Elon Musk when he was trying to get the Falcon going. You know, way, going back a couple of years, you'd see these just, you know, just things exploding in the process. And that can be frustrating. But how do you, I mean, how do rockets, what's, their, what's the rocket scientist approach to testing things, but also still making progress so they're not, I'm, not, I'm trying to think like, so they're not, they're not being held back by the testing, but they're still actually trying to move forward while testing. Sure. So there's a principle in, in rocket science called test as you fly, fly as you test. And I'll talk about the principle in a, in a minute, but I, I first want to underscore what you said, Brett. Experimentation is, is really, really valuable. You don't know if something is going to work until you actually try it. And this, by the way, is a way of reducing uncertainty as well, because experiments give you information that you otherwise don't have. And I, I'm a left brain person, and I, I tend to sometimes find myself stuck in this mode of like doing pro and con lists and thinking through things rationally, trying to figure out the best approach. But you don't know what the best approach is until you actually see the consequences play out. And so running limited experiments is really, really important. And, and this is important in our personal lives. It's important for businesses as well. You know, Before investing so much money in developing a product, you can see if the market is, a, is actually interested in buying that product through a limited small-scale experiment. And so that happens all the time in science. Is, that's how scientists gather information is through, through testing their, their hypothesis. So in rocket science, that testing that experimentation takes the mold of test as you fly, fly as you test, which means that to the extent possible, the testing has to very closely resemble and ideally be identical to the conditions of flight. So in whatever environment that the flight is going to take place, you try to simulate to the closest extent possible in a, in a testing environment. So you try to you know subject it, everything down to the screws to the same types of vibrations that they're going to experience during during flight. You do the same thing with, with computers. You do the same thing with the humans. Astronauts train in this giant pool that simulates microgravity, the type of microgravity that they're going to experience when they're, say, doing repairs or conducting work on the, on the International Space Station. And most of the time... I think this is true for both people and businesses. We violate that test as you fly principle. We violate it because we, we test, we experiment in conditions that are wildly disconnected from reality. So even businesses who are experimenting, they're not doing it properly, which means that they're getting some answers, but those answers tend to be incorrect. So, you know, I'll, one question that businesses ask in many surveys, for example, is, you know, how much would you pay for this pair of shoes? Now, think about it. Do you ever get that question in real life? No, never. No, right? Never. And so when you ask that question on a test, on a, on a survey, you're not going to get a good answer because whoever you're asking that to 
has never thought about the answer to that question. The best way to test for that is to bring the test as close as possible to the flight. So actually manufacture a prototype of the shoe, put it on a shelf somewhere in a store and put a price on it and see if people are willing to take out their credit card and buy buy the shoe. That's going to give you the most reliable information because then the test is is as close as possible to to flight. The same thing applies in our personal lives as well. You know, we we say do practice job interviews in in conditions that are wildly disconnected from reality. We practice a a speech that we're going to give in public for example or if you're doing a presentation when you're at home in a comfortable environment, you're sitting in your sweatpants and you know, you're giving a presentation to your your significant other, but that is not how the actual flight is going to go. The flight is going to go when you're in an unfamiliar environment, you're going to be nervous, you're going to be wearing an uncomfortable suit probably, and so you're better off practicing your speech or presentation in the same conditions. And so, and I've done this before where like I'm practicing a speech, I will drink a couple espressos to give me the types of jitters that I might experience in, in, in that particular, particular environment. And so the, the, the more that you can bring whatever experiments you're running closer to reality, the better the answers will be from those experiments. Another mental model or way of looking at the world that scientists embrace, at least really good scientists do, but I think regular people have a hard time is accepting or embracing the idea of failure. Mm-hmm. Like with scientists, like you said, like the whole point of science is to falsify. Like you prove something not wrong. You know, you know the goal isn't to prove something right. Your, your, your goal is to prove it's not wrong, right? Right. And so that requires you to sometimes, you know, sort of, you know, I'm like, I slaughter your mental children, I guess, in a way, like, you know, yeah. and, and, but I think a lot of people, like, they don't like doing that. They don't like embracing the idea that they're going to fail or their idea is going to be proven wrong because their ego is tied up in it. How do scientists detach their ego from their, their ideas? The very first step is, so scientists don't have opinions. I mean, they might have opinions about subjects other than science, but they create what's called working hypotheses. So these are, and they're, they're usually multiple because when you create only a single hypothesis, you might become unduly attached to it. So you create multiple hypotheses. So you're basically giving birth to multiple children. So you are not unduly favoring one over the other. And then you try to falsify them. And, and I think the biggest mental shift is not equating your beliefs with yourself with your your hypotheses with yourself, your opinions with yourself. I think the moment we do that, we are in really dangerous territory. There's a quote from Richard Feynman, who's a Nobel-winning physicist that I love. He says, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. You are the easiest person to fool because the moment you believe in something, the moment you declare an opinion. And the moment you try, you begin to blend that belief or that opinion into your identity, you have a very good chance of making a fool out of yourself. Once our opinions become blended with our identity, it's really hard to change them. There's a quote I love from, um, I think it's from Upton Sinclair. He says, you know, it's really hard to get um, get someone to understand something if their salary depends on their not understanding it. 
The same thing applies to identity as well. If if someone's identity depends on they're not understanding something, then they're not going to understand it. And in the modern world, um, our beliefs have become synonymous with our identity. Like if you if you believe in plant based eating, you're vegan. If you do CrossFit, you're a CrossFitter. If you believe in primal eating, you're paleo. All of those beliefs become a part of your identity. Like I say, or we say, I'm paleo, I'm vegan, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican. And when you do that, then changing your mind means changing your identity, which is a really, really hard sell. Which is why, by the way, many disagreements in the modern world turn into these existential death matches. Because people's, not just their beliefs, but their identities are at stake. So there's a lot to be said about formatting hypotheses instead of creating opinions. Done that, moving on to the second phase of actually trying to prove your opinions wrong, trying to prove yourself wrong, which doesn't feel good. But if your goal is, and I think this should be our goal, not to be right, but to find what's right, then you adopt a, a different approach to the world where you're actually actively seeking disconfirming evidence, trying to gather data so you can chart the best path forward. This is why failure can be the best teacher if you know how to approach it properly. Failure gives you incredible data, incredibly valuable data that you can't find elsewhere. But the problem is we don't learn from failure. We don't learn from failure either because we're too afraid to even try something. So we don't even create the room for failure. We just look at that blank canvas and let it sit blank because we're too afraid to to make a mistake. Or, and that can be paralyzing. Or at the other side of the extreme, which is this mantra that's so popular in Silicon Valley, fail fast, fail often, fail forward, where now entrepreneurs are actually in the mode of, of celebrating failure. Silicon Valley companies are holding Funerals for failed startups, complete with bagpipes and DJ spitting records and alcohol flowing freely. And the problem is, I mean, I get why they're trying to do that, to try to take the stigma out of failure. But in trying to do that, I think the pendulum has swung in the other direction. When you celebrate something, you don't learn from it. The clinking of the champagne glasses masks the feedback you would otherwise receive. And research bears this out as well. I cite a study in the book of 65 cardiac surgeons, and the studies show that the surgeons who botched a procedure ended up performing worse on later procedures. Not only did they not learn from their mistakes, but they actually end up reinforcing them. And we don't learn from our mistakes when we celebrate them. We also don't learn from them if we don't do the type of internal soul searching that learning requires. When we fail, what happens is we'll say, well, it wasn't really our fault. We just we just got we just got unlucky, or we blame it on third parties, you know, the regulators or the competitors, and then we do the same thing that we do we did yesterday, and just hope that the wind blows in a better direction. And so you fail and fail and fail, but if you're not learning, then nothing is changing. Which is why I think the fail fast mantra is the is the wrong one. The goal should really be to learn fast. And that's exactly the approach that scientists, all scientists, not just rocket scientists, apply in their lives. They know that all breakthroughs are evolutionary, not revolutionary. If you're trying to achieve something transformative, you're not going to succeed on the first try. Einstein's first several proofs for E equals MC square failed. 
SpaceX's first three launches were spectacular failures. We have an obsession with grand openings, but the, the opening doesn't have to be grand as long as the, the finale is. And the best way to make the finale grand is to learn from each failure and get better with each iteration. All right, so embrace failure, you know, but don't like glorify it because that'll, you know, that'll cause you to overlook what you can learn from the failure. Exactly. But another point you make in the book that's related that success can actually uh, get in the way of progress can in, and can eventually lead to failure. So what is it about success in science that can cause scientists to go astray? Success has a way of breeding complacency. And that's true, not just in science, but in business as well and in our personal lives. When we're, when we have a string of, of successes, when we think we're in the lead, we stop listening. When we declare ourselves to be an expert on something, we begin making confident conclusions without backing it up with, with the facts. When we think we're in the first place, we start blaming others when things can go wrong. It can be harder for someone, for a business, to survive their own success than to survive their failure. Because when we succeed, we assume that everything went according to plan. We don't do a post-mortem after success. We just say, you know, we celebrate, right? Just like Silicon Valley celebrates failure, we, we celebrate success. But it's possible to do some things wrong and still succeed. And by the way, on the flip side of that, it's, it's possible to do some things right and still fail which is why scientists focus on the process. The goal is to isolate the good decisions and fix the bad decisions, regardless of whether the outcome is success or failure. So the ideally, you would follow the exact same investigation after each success and after each failure. You ask yourself, what were the, the good decisions here? And we should retain those good decisions for the future, regardless of whether they produce success or failure. And then you isolate the wrong decisions, the bad decisions, the mistakes. And then you try to fix them regardless of whether they produce failure or success. And if you don't do that, you're courting catastrophe. Um, one of the examples I give in the book, there's a chapter called Nothing Fails Like Success, are the, the, the space shuttle disasters that NASA experienced with Challenger and, and Columbia. And let me preface this by saying those launch decisions were extraordinarily difficult decisions. And we may have made the same decision to launch if we were in the shoes of the, of the NASA managers who were in charge of each launch. So there is a, you know, a hindsight bias here. We're looking at, at it through the 2020 lens of, of, of hindsight, but we can still get valuable lessons from these disasters. In both cases, NASA got complacent with its own success. The technical flaw in Challenger and Columbia was different. In Challenger, it was this O-ring that failed. It's a flexible, supposed to be flexible rubber band that seals the, the, the boosters and prevents hot gases from escaping from them. And the O-rings had been badly damaged on a number of missions before Challenger. And several engineers raised their hands and said, look, this is a serious problem. If we don't do something about this, the result is going to be a catastrophe of the, of the highest order. But the managers at NASA ignored those requests because they assumed that, look, if we just do what we did yesterday, if we launch the space shuttle the same way that we did yesterday, if we follow the same process, then we're going to have success. Because even with badly damaged O-rings in the past, the space shuttle missions have succeeded. 
But of course, then we get the Challenger and the O-rings failed and the entire space shuttle exploded. Fast forward 17 years later to the Columbia disaster in 2003, the underlying technical flaw was different, but the deeper cultural flaw was the same. In that case, again, this technical flaw of a piece of foam that separated from the shuttle and struck the thermal insulation that's responsible for protecting the shuttle from the heat of re-entry after it gets back into the, into the atmosphere. And during liftoff, you know, several engineers noticed this foam strike and they raised their hands while the shuttle was in orbit and said, look, this looks really bad. Let's call up the Pentagon and reroute some, ask them to reroute some spy satellites so they can survey the damage in orbit and see if we can fix it before we send the shuttle back or bring the shuttle back to Earth. And the NASA managers ignored those requests because they said, look, the foam shedding, as it was called at NASA internally, had happened in numerous missions in the past without a catastrophe. And the assumption is that since those missions succeeded, if we just do what we did that led to those successes, then we can expect the same outcome today. So success is a way of of concealing mistakes. And if we're not careful, if we're not performing a post-mortem after an in-depth investigation of what went right and what went wrong after each success as well, then, then we are courting catatastrophe. All right. So if things are going well for you, you should probably be paranoid. Like something's yeah, probably yeah, exactly. going. So uninterrupted success can actually be a warning sign. Right. Well, there's a lot more we could talk about. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Sure. So the best way to stay in touch with me, I'm not active on social media, is through my email list. You can sign up for that at weeklycontrarian.com. The email goes out to over 22,000 subscribers and just shares one big idea that you can read in less than three minutes. And then my book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, it's available wherever books are sold. You can head over also to rocketsciencebook.com to find all of the purchase links. Fantastic. Well, Ozan Varol, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. My guest here is Ozan Varol. He is the author of the book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, ozanvarol.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash rocket scientist, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AWIM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.